It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Yo, man. Boom, it's Rusty. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Public Access Podcast. The podcast here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network. And I am your host, Rusty Diamond. And yeah, check out other great shows on the network, such as When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is it with Lizzie and Say by the Ben. And the show is brought to you by Stoner Eats Productions, Fred Ben Savage's Fuck, Hardcore Entertainment, Hypnosis is Great, and SockEmUp.org. And yeah, I've been talking to a buddy who lives in Indonesia, and he's been saying I should be getting my show back on what's not not whatnot but whatnot is an actual yeah site and sell should i used to sell a bunch of clothes and vhs tapes and records on there but it got oversaturated with sellers and it was just hard to gather an audience but i really enjoyed doing those shows when they were going so Maybe one day I'll go back to it, but who knows? Plus, I had a, a shop then with a bunch of inventory, and now I just have a little bit, even though I have like I have a bunch of records right now. I have like four boxes of records that I need to go through and post on eBay or whatever. But that's not what this show's about. It might be kind of about that, but today I'm gonna bring on my special guest. But first. But first, you can leave a message. You can give me a call and put your stuff on the show. 503-974-6420. Or if you don't want to, there's always the option. And uh, oh, it's not going to do it. Why won't it do it? Why won't it play that? I don't know why it won't play it. That sucks. What the fuck? Okay, well, you guys, it says messages, messages. We don't need no sticky messages. There's my shout out to returning guests. So uh, without, I don't want to say without further ado, uh, I'm bring my special guest right here, right now. That's what I say. So right here, right now, we have Prabha Nagarajan. So welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm well, thank you, Rusty. Oh, yeah, pleasure to have you here. Uh, so I see uh, you have the Golden Gate Bridge there in, in the background. Uh, was there significance to the Golden Gate Bridge or was that uh, something that was in, in the water or uh, what, what was your significance with the Golden Gate Bridge? I'm going to tell you something. It's probably my son who put it on there. I have absolutely no <laughs> idea how to operate this level of tech. <laughs> That's good. That's fair enough then. So, okay. So, uh, 
so when, when okay well i guess then my first question is so with this so are you doing a lot of your work then with your clients online or are you doing a lot of stuff in person or and if it I, is all i I almost only work online now. I pretty much only work online. I mean, I will treat somebody if they come to me locally or if I have friends and family who are local to me. But generally, I don't really work um, in person anymore. And so with that, how has, you know, with, with uh, do you have your son helping you out, setting you up with a lot of what you're doing online then or... Uh, are you just no, actually, we, we, we join, we use the Zoom account jointly because he's home educated and he has some, you know, tutoring online. And uh, he was redoing my Zoom, I think, last week. He said, Mom, the clarity is not good. The color is not good. I don't know what the hell you've done to it. It's not working really well. And he went in and he was doing stuff. And I said, What are you doing? I said, I noticed that things are not really clear, but I have no idea what I did to make it not clear because I did something to the settings. And then he's like, well, whatever, I'm going to fix it for you. And he did. He must have changed the background because I used to have this kind of a blur background. And I I, oh, okay. I, I saw that and I actually, actually, I thought, oh, Rusty must really like the uh, bridge, you know? And I said, oh, he must have put it until you asked me. And I realized huh. it was me that had done it. <laughs> no, I, I, didn't, I didn't put the bridge uh... Uh, San Francisco is uh, an interesting place uh, in the first place. Uh, uh, have you you've been to San Francisco before? You've been? Yeah, I have been maybe um, 14, 15, 16 years ago. I was in San Francisco. Okay. I went there on that, not on that bridge, uh, but, you know, walked through the bridge. Uh, very, very interesting memories for me. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen some wild stuff there. Uh walking around the city. Um, yeah, I, I've been there a number of times in the last, I went there, I think, when was that? Maybe two years ago, I think I went there. And then before that, I think it had been, it had been a long time or no, no, I took that back. I went there back in, what is that? Five, six, maybe five or six years ago, I had to go to the uh, the Chinese consulate down there and yeah it was uh, yeah i mean you definitely see some interesting stuff i i mean i saw a kid that was i don't know maybe definitely under 10 years old um I, who i assume was her his mother uh hand him a crack pipe and smoke crack uh at you know 9 10 o'clock in the morning Wow. Um, yeah, it was, that's something, that's a memory. I don't know if I'll be able to shake for a, a while. Obviously, six years later, I haven't, but yeah, it was uh, a lot of the cities on the West Coast have just gotten wild. Uh, I, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I've seen that city just go. And then Seattle and Vancouver, British Columbia, up in Canada, just all of them have just had i don't know a lot a big uh i don't know what happened i don't know what happened to those cities and they just yeah kind of gone um they're beautiful they're all beautiful cities and they've all taken 
kind of a, a nosedive in some aspects of it. And it's it's kind of unfortunate, but, you know. Wow. So, I, I didn't know that about uh, about those places. And I can't imagine the intensity of the suffering uh, that the people there must be experiencing to go down this kind of paths. Yeah, there, yeah, there's, it's interesting, especially since, um, like in, in Oregon, uh, every drug is legalized now. And so you have people, again, yeah, smoking crack freely. And a lot of people are on, on fentanyl and, uh, and meth and stuff of that nature. So it's, it's interesting. But then there's people that are, The, the way that they're like, nobody's really helping the situation. It seems more people are wanting to take video of it, of, you know, of rather than, you know, doing something to help someone, it seems like to put it on, you know, for some sort of internet clout of, yeah. um, Whatever. I mean, that, that's kind of a thing we're seeing a lot more now, too, uh, as far as, you know, something something happens and rather than go to try for help, the first natural instinct is to pull out the phone and get, you yeah. know, get footage of it. I guess I guess I, I would say rather than that being a natural instinct, that's become the unnatural redirection of our instincts. Right. Yeah. And it's is kind of wild i mean i don't i mean and it didn't take very long to get there i mean it took less than 20 years to get there for it um and i mean in the span of time that's not a very very big chunk of of time there 20 years and i don't even know if 20 mm -hmm. years is is long enough but you know no, uh, i was just yeah. talking I was just talking on my Facebook page yesterday about about uh, addiction, addiction and its somatic causes. And uh, in my opinion, I mean, legalization of drugs and all these are secondary factors, but the primary factor in addiction is trauma. It doesn't take very long for trauma to uh, to be in our system. It only takes, you know, it, it just takes a couple of years, a, a few incidents, uh, even a few months. It's not a time factor even, I should say. It's just those moments of intense pain and not being supported when we have that kind of suffering. And that's it. And that can just, you know, completely railroad our entire lives. And it's not surprising in 20 years, I don't know what went on in those cities, but something must have gone on that made these people feel that they didn't have support and they didn't have anybody. Yeah, and I mean, with trauma, I've, dug into this quite a bit and with with trauma it stores in your your rna and what i thought was it would go down and be passed down two to three generations and so which i thought was a lot but find out i was way off and it's around 25 to 30 generations down that this sticks through you and you, I mean, don't even know why you have these, this stuff inside you when 
I mean, a lot of trauma could be healed in under two hours. Um, you know, each separate thing, I, I, how many times you got to do it is dependent on each person and varies from person to person. But I mean, a lot of it is just can be done and it can, you can, 25 generations of people that's you know conservatively you know four or five hundred years of your lineage and it's it's almost a a selfish aspect to not work on yourself to um to work through these traumas and a lot of people now are wearing it as a badge of honor and it, you get this serotonin boost of people giving you sympathy um as opposed to and then expecting everybody else not bring it up or you know tr trigger you or whatever the the term may be and always have to be living on edge and when you're living on edge and always waiting for this, you're you're in that uh, you know fight or flight mode, adrenaline going. And at that point, you can't learn anything new. You're making non-thought-out decisions and just you know not really able to live your life how you should be living your life. And mm -hmm. it's it's uh i don't know it's seems like it's a lot more accepted to wear your trauma as a badge and not go out to try to better yourself and you know be able to work through your trauma is that something can you're I, experiencing can i can i add my two cents because I, I, what i think what i think is that it takes a minimal capacity before we can start processing our trauma like for me, the thing that put me on my path to healing is that when I was a child, even though I had many, many adverse experiences, I had two incidents in my life where I experienced unconditional compassion and kindness. And those two events in my life became this kind of a light that led my way where I started realizing that there might be something good out there. Therefore, I knew that there had to be something good so I could look for it, right? But right. so many people, when they're in the midst of trauma, they have not experienced that something good or they have not experienced it at a time where they could absorb and assimilate it. Sometimes people just need that ability to, you know, that, that ability to trust. Like if you are, entirely in a place of i cannot trust the world that is because you have injury say in your very heart and your very primal injury but how can you be open to healing you just think you know you just think oh that's not possible my issue is too complex this is not going to work for me or you can't you know some people they are spiraling in such a like um in a situation where even if you give them a any resource they can't you know they just can't absorb it so 
whether society condones doesn't condone i think there are there are both sides to it i think if people believe that they cannot um do better they basically it's a self-fulfilling prophecy they cannot do better but everybody comes to a point in their life when it's like rock bottom and they say okay fine what's my life going to stand for now and i'm going to dig deep usually by the time i have a lot of clients because i do somatic work a lot of my clients are on the older end of the spectrum so they are more people who have tried everything and then they've come to that place where it's like okay this is just you know i have nothing to lose they're coming at that stage to me they've lived a life that's full of illness full of pain full of suffering and i just work with a simple philosophy when the life force energy within you is blocked you will have suffering whether it's emotional suffering mental suffering physical suffering chronic ailments it doesn't matter what the suffering is but the whole point is that you will suffer when life force energy is blocked and somatically we just work on unblocking the life force energy so that your suffering is reduced whatever your symptom is that's the end result of that symptom is that you're suffering and the suffering the call to awaken so and yeah yeah sorry. And, and like you were saying earlier that when someone is feeling like they you know nothing nothing's going to help their situation it's again that they're you know they're living on that adrenaline and and that point you can't really take in that new information which you know can obviously change their life and so and you said most people that they come to you they come to you when they've hit rock bottom they've but i mean that rock bottom is so important for so many people to get there um you know because yeah once you get there you can't like it's literal rock bottom uh i like using the analogy of of pooping your pants and once you do that you you know you can't do it anymore so i mean it's only only one way to go and that's up and i think it's important for some people to get there and they just have that that kind of brain uh, i mean that's the kind of brain i have and it's tough it's a tough spot and i don't know if there's a way to you know be able to reach out to people like like that or like myself beforehand and have that person really be like okay well hey maybe i should go talk to someone beforehand before i get to this spot of well okay i tried everything and everything's messed up and it's over um now i gotta now i gotta work on it as you know if there's a way or do you have a a way for people to maybe go to the get to that place before they get to rock bottom i guess the 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 philosophy that i have is the most important factor in trauma is loss of personal agency loss of the right to choose and i think if people need to hit rock bottom to find help that is their absolute right to choose and i honor their right to choose that i have a lot of people in my facebook group but uh a lot of them are not ready a lot of them will just listen they will just watch but they're not ready to seek help or to find help or to heal they will suffer 
even if it is for t- 10 years, 15 years. And it's not just in my group, it's all over. I'm most active on Facebook. I myself was that person. I was chronically depressed from when I was 15 years old and I did not seek help for it until I was in my 30s. I made big life changes when I was around 30, 35, 30, around 35. And it was that moment, and I still remember the moment. It was in 2007, and I just, I prayed that day. I just prayed. Everything on my life looked good on the outside. I had a good job, apparently a, a good relationship, money. And I just was so miserable on the inside. I got down on my knees and I said, oh, I will do whatever it takes to stop suffering. I will do whatever it takes. And I'll tell you something. Whatever it takes was an understatement because I had to give up every single thing that meant anything to me to become the person I am today. That career had to go. That marriage had to go. That money had to go. Everything, everything. I had to lose my attachment to everything. And it's not a journey for the faint-hearted. So we have to be ready. So what happened? I mean, how'd that, how'd that turn out? Like, what, what did you have to do? So you go and you, you're praying, you're saying you need to change this. I mean, what was that? What was that first step? What was that next moment? Like after you, you know, open your eyes, uh, either literally or figuratively. It was not so clear cut because I started meditating at that time. And I used to do intense meditations of say, 10 hours, 12 hours, um, you know, 15 hours, I would do that. And I would have some really surreal experiences as a result of that meditation. Uh, But what I realized at that time, it's that moment was a moment of surrender for me, because I had been trying to be in charge and control my life in so many ways before that. And I just had this kind of like, let it all go, whatever is too hard for you to hold on to whatever is causing your suffering let it all go. Just let it go. And I started letting things go. The things that were hardest to let go of, I had to let them go. Obviously, I did it in a titrated fashion, one thing at a time, being more compassionate with myself. But as I went through this process, I started having a lot more of this kind of self-belief, courage in myself, knowing that I would be okay no matter what happened. And this courage that I didn't have before, where I was holding on to external things to give my life, meaning and to give me that sense of stability instead that sense of stability needed to now come from within me there was no choice like it had to be and every time I was faced with the question and I had I remember even when I was giving up my career and I had been trying to listen to my heart for many years my heart had been very tightly shut not saying a single thing and I just heard that day as I was walking into work my heart said you can carry on doing this thing you do and stay where you are, or you have to give it up, and we can, you know, you can move forward. Didn't take me a moment's thought. I went in and handed in my papers and said, I need to leave. That was it. And this was not just any job. I was an ex-banker, you know, I was working in, in large projects. It was, it was a good pay. I was a single mother. None of this was easy. None of this. But Sometimes you have to do things that are difficult. Absolutely. And so so you hand in your your paper saying, I'm done with this job. And then so and then you said you were in a relationship as well. And so did you go home and how did that 
what was the reaction I, when you said, hey, uh, I just quit my job? Actually, I ended the relationship a few years before. Okay. So, so I ended the relationship and, uh, you know, it took me a few years to get, the, get out of the relationship. It was a very messy divorce. Navigating that was also very hard for me. I was a people pleaser. I was somebody who was always very submissive and very like, you know, I would never take on. And I had to take every step of the way. I had to force the situation. And I was half the time, most of the time I was doing it, trembling, afraid, terrified but I had to do it and I was doing it little by little by little and I finished navigating that. Then I had my son as a single parent and then I, I stayed a few years working because my, you know, I needed some stability as a single parent. And then it was in 2014 that I had my last job and I, and I gave it up and I walked away. Uh, I've been very afraid after that for many years. And I want to tell people who are afraid that it's very normal to be afraid when you're doing new things. Uh, but eventually it took me some years to come to this place where I realized that my calling was to do this kind of work. And, uh, you know, it started off with just people spontaneously healing around me. And I was like, actually, I didn't want to be a healer. I didn't want to be a coach. I said, I grew up in a family where it was all about martyrdom and serving others. And I said, I'm not going down that path. That's not for me. And it was taken out of my hands again, because, you know, when you, when you have to walk on these paths, you have to walk with trust. And when I found myself doing this kind of healing that I wasn't even trying to do, I had to take the message on board or somatically, I would have started suffering myself. It would have become a block in my own body. As far as what? A block in your body for... You life not, energy okay not to flow. and so you were saying earlier too that when you were uh thinking about the relationship and you said you were you're fearful of uh of something what what did you mean by that what what were you af afraid of well i had been used to a i grew i, I was born in india um, it, and I have a very orthodox kind of family. I was afraid of my family rejecting me, my relatives, me bringing shame on my wider family. That was one thing. And my immediate family, my parents and my siblings, I was uh, my in my marriage. It had largely been things had largely been done how my ex-husband wanted. And I had been generally very afraid of challenging him. I don't know whether I can say that it was because of him. It was probably because of me, because I was just far too submissive a person and I had never spoken up and put any boundaries or said anything. I, I, I behaved very much like a doormat. So the moment I wanted things and I asked for things, it became an issue because I had never wanted or asked for things before. And suddenly it's like, why the hell does she want things? You know, she's not the one who gets things. That was the kind of relationship that you two had entered into before that those were the, uh, and those were the, I guess, boundaries, but those were the expectations of what was going on. And then once you said, hey, this, this isn't working for me, then, then it's a completely different relationship at that point. And, you know, um, so, I mean, I guess that, that makes sense. And so then did you have I mean, had you seen examples of this where, like, within your family of other someone, um, 
you know, ending a relationship before or um, where you I, thought that I grew maybe. Up, yeah. I grew up in a traditional family in South India. We don't divorce. Like they just don't divorce. There are no divorces. Okay. No matter how miserable you are, you are going to stay together. Of course, I wasn't exactly the same because I was living in London at that time. I'd been outside of India for, you know, maybe eight years, something like that. And uh, I had a lot more, I guess I was a lot more westernized in my, in my uh, you know, beliefs and stuff. My own family, I hadn't seen any divorce at all. In all my growing years, I had never seen a single divorce. I had seen people remarry because they were either widowed or something like this, uh, but never actually a divorce. Even, even if they didn't get along, they just, you know, kept going on. And so how did your family end up reacting? Uh, at that time, my dad, actually, I went in when I, when I, I didn't tell them before I was divorcing. I told them when I was already in the courts and I was kind of finishing the procedure because I was afraid they were going to try to persuade me to stay. So when I, uh, when I told my dad at that time, he said, uh, why didn't you tell me? I would have talked to him and I would have convinced him. But I said to him, would you rather your daughter was dead and married than alive and not and divorced? And I think he didn't really understand the gravity of things until that happened because I was clinically depressed at the time I was doing the divorce and I had to do it even though I was clinically depressed. But I think my father didn't understand the gravity of it until I said it like that. And then he just, he just was quiet. But they did take, the, take it very badly in the sense like my parents didn't really go to family functions anymore. They didn't really socialize with the relatives anymore. I guess they felt the social shame of it. Wow. And so then your parents are still living in India, you said? Yeah, my dad passed away about uh, two years ago. My mom is still there. And, uh, you know, she's much more uh, resilient to this kind of thing. She's the one who taught me that, you know, uh, you have to be your own person, have your own money, have your own mind, you know, uh, those kind of things. So she taught me not to compromise over much. But uh, I think it was a blow for her as well. But she understood a lot more and she continued to uh, be be much more supportive of whatever choices I, I made even after that. So when you were growing up, did you see any relationships that ended up looking like the relationship you were in um, at that point? Did you see any that you were kind of modeling after? I think I was modeling very much the behaviors of, of my, you know, primary carers, which was very much like I, I would always do too much and then be the victim. I didn't have any boundaries and I just bitched after the fact. I never really took my power and put my boundaries and say, this is what I'm for. I didn't have self-worth. I didn't have, you know, my own, my own like uh, personality, you could say. I was just very reactive. I was just a person who was, who just reacted to things. I didn't have anything that was me or my own. And it took me many, many um, decades, I guess, to start realizing who I was, what, what my beliefs were, what I felt, even my own feelings. I didn't know what I felt. I didn't know what I felt. 
ever, ever in my life, <laughs> you know. What What do you mean? What What did you feel then? I mean, if you we were able to felt, identify your emotions, you mean? No, I just felt what other people told me I was feeling. I just felt what other people were feeling. If, if you... I, I couldn't separate me from others, like I just like I was telling in my and I, I did a live in my group about uh, autoimmune conditions. And in that I was talking about how if somebody needed help, I didn't realize that there was a difference. They needed help. Then they would decide if they needed me to help them. And then they would ask me for help. And then I would decide if I would help or not. Right. There is this multiple step process instead someone asked for help, I would immediately jump up and help them as if there wasn't really a choice, as if their very suffering was actually a request for help from me and that I didn't really have a choice to say, no, I didn't really have a choice to consider what else I had to do. I just had to help. And this way I kept leaking my energy everywhere, just doing things, being this person who was constantly sacrificing for others. And so this is while you were in the you know should have been or you know been reaching out to somebody else and the old uh yeah you know put up put on you're in the airplane you put on the oxygen mask before you put on you know the kid's oxygen mask or someone else's oxygen mask because you can't really give that kind of attention to somebody else if at the same point you're needing it probably as much as they are if not more but being able um, to kind of yeah you you need self-worth to put your own oxygen mask on i had right. no self-worth whatsoever even <laughs> if i even if somebody offered me oxygen i would say no take some extra for yourself while i while i starve from oxygen that was me like i was just so beyond I always have a completely hopeless case you know I would go to therapy and I would I would listen to the therapist talk about their lives I couldn't even talk to the therapist about uh about what I was feeling how I was feeling like I was beyond repair what did you talk to the therapist about if you didn't talk about to talk about what you were feeling how good uh how good things were how well I didn't know how I was feeling so I couldn't obviously talk about that I talk about how well things were how it was okay I was clinically depressed and I would go to to therapy at that time and I still remember I couldn't really I didn't have like that this is the reason I do somatic work because my 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 throat was so blocked I couldn't even utter the words that I needed to to say I need help like I couldn't even utter those words and I just would just sit there and I would go like it's all really good I, I just blaming myself. I'm the problem. I don't know why I'm depressed. And nobody could help me because I wasn't even letting them in like five millimeters in. I wasn't, you know, I would just yeah. take all the blame on myself and I would just sit there and, you know, talk about how everybody else was perfect, how everything else was great. It was just me that was wrong. And it was heartbreaking when I think about it, but that's how I was. So did your therapist call you on your bullshit or did you, your therapist kind of talk you along with it and eventually I mean or was your therapist the one who kind of assisted you to see what was really going on or 
did uh was it just i mean i yeah because i mean therapists i mean uh there's all different kinds of therapists just like doctors um just like hypnotists uh anything else i mean there's there's always more than one and you know if one isn't working well with you go find another one um i doubt it's gonna hurt their feelings uh, and if it does they weren't that good in the first place and i mean they yeah i mean it's you, know, you can't really tell someone you can but i mean someone might not listen you know just as especially with so many like a clinical board you know you can't you can't really say oh, no you're you're you know you're 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 wrong it's just sort of a improv yes and thing and getting all the information as opposed to kind of trying to find ways to improve more just gathering data and letting you be able to get stuff off your chest but the stuff you're getting off your chest was only what you thought but not really what you're actually feeling and experiencing exactly so i um this was cbt at that time uh because i was on antidepressants and you know i was doing cbt and um, I, um, I didn't really do anything much more than sit and cry in the sessions. I just sat there and I cried and everything that was said to me, probably not in the harsh way, but it was just self-reflective. I took it as criticism. So I was very, I was not a very good candidate for CBT. I was I was, I have a very powerful analytical mind and I was probably a good candidate for self-healing, like somebody who could take some resources and do their own work, especially because I didn't have a relationship of trust with the outside world. A lot of my work had to be me doing it with myself, which is kind of why a lot of the work I do now is actually empowering people to self-heal as well. Because I, I recognize that when you are, even though we do a lot of work in trying to, me supporting them in the group, I always hand them the resources and then they can come to me for help. So I always give them all the tools. I teach them how to do things. And then we have that kind of a community and the Zoom calls where they can come and get support. So I kind of feel like for me, that would have been the right way to go about things simply because um i would have been i would have benefited most in that way let's say and so if you're going to your therapist and you're going in there and you're i'm you're going in there crying every session was it i mean was it your idea to start going to therapy or was it somebody um, else's actually i was um It was, it was partly my idea. I wanted help. I was on, I was on antidepressants and I wanted help. And 
my ex-husband was facilitating this so he would take me to the therapy and bring me back and you know support me with uh, uh, you know with whatever I needed basically so he was supporting me but uh, I had actually not wanted to come back to England at that time I had gone to India and I was staying with my sister and I didn't want to come back uh, I quit my job this was in between uh, I couldn't cope and I just needed like my family but he persuaded me to come back. He said, come back, you will find help, we'll get you what you need. And he did it. He did find me, you know, therapy. He found me help and support. And it was, you know, it was the NHS in the UK. So it was like 12 sessions or something. They gave me, I just went there and boohooed the whole time. And I came back and, it, you know, it was just how it was. So was he going into the sessions with you? No, no, he was waiting outside. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Um... I mean, did with him waiting outside, was that influencing your train of thought at all? Or was that, did you see it as helpful or do you see it as like, what, what's, is this going to please him or, or what was kind of going on there? I, I don't really think I knew how to differentiate me from him. I didn't really know where I began and where anybody else began and ended. I just had no awareness I didn't even know like I just didn't know you know now looking back I cannot tell you because it was just such a mess so was he going to therapy if you two were were kind of one and the same was it or was that something that was you know he was not, not clinically depressed he was not clinically depressed I was so I was going to therapy because I was clinically depressed uh I I would say that actually what really did help me is I think it was in 2016 or 17, maybe 18. I went to Women's Trust. Women's Trust is a charity for women who experience domestic violence. Um, and I went there and the work that they did, it was a different kind of therapy. It was in groups. It was workshops. It was things like that that absolutely changed everything for me. Like it was the last bit that was just unraveling rapidly when I went there. Everything I'd been doing with my meditation, with my own inner work, everything came together uh, when I was with the Women's Trust, when I went with the Women's Trust. So with your meditation, when you were doing that, you said you're doing it for, do you say 12 hours at a time? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Very intense. So if you're doing meditation for 12 hours at a time before you realize that you want to get better and then after you get better, what were the differences that you were experiencing when you were in 12 hours of meditation before and after? I mean, did you feel like you were getting to the, the, the roots of things when you beforehand, or did you feel like that opened up a lot more once you um, started getting yourself in a better place so the main thing that meditation did to me it built my inner muscle the invisible muscle that is the me who am i the self right it improved my perception right. of myself my boundaries it helped me understand my energetic body i started feeling things in my body i started being able to see my energy manage my energy along with that came also being able to see other people's energy and to to navigate those things uh i became really strong from the inside i became really 
able to stay strong and grounded in who I was. It made my neural networks really flexible. So I was able to change my perception uh, very easily. And there was a saying that I read, um, every time I change my perception, I rewrite uh, my DNA or something like, I don't remember exactly the words, but um, that's basically what it is. Because every time I changed, I was able to change my perception when before I was a victim and everybody else was evil, I was able to start seeing my own contribution in that dynamic. And I started being able to see that, uh, oh, maybe uh, this way of being wasn't quite right. And I started seeing my own obligations to myself, my own relationship. So when I was this kind of a blaming person from being this blaming, negative, resentful person, I started becoming this uh, graceful, grateful uh, empowered, you know, self, self, self-loving person, I guess. So neuroplasticity, I would say, is the number one benefit of meditation. Yeah, and so who would you say you, yourself was before and who, if you were, you know, if you're meditating and you're saying, who am I now? Like, who are you now? So before I was, I was very much in my victim mindset. I was somebody who, who thought the world was divided into right and wrong, good and bad. The people who are, uh, you know, givers and the people who are takers. I had a very like a judgmental kind of view, view of life. I was an extremely judgmental person. You might have been, uh, too fooled by my externally soft demeanor because I didn't say no, I didn't have boundaries. But inside my mind, it was all sharp, you know, sharp prongs and and broken glass. It was just like everything was just so harsh and judgmental. And I judged myself very harshly too, which is why I judged others. And it was very, very, um, yeah, I was very full of shame. I was full of resentment, uh, all these things, anger, all these things, unresolved, uh, you could say those kind of emotions that are just trapped in our bodies. You know, I, I just, I wasn't even myself. I was, I would, I used to call myself like a bunch of reactions. I was just constantly just looking at others and judging them and thinking what was wrong with them, what was bad about them without realizing that I myself, and I remember it was meditation that got me that I had this kind of aha moment one day. And I was like, I am actually judging myself with those same harsh words that I'm judging others. And that was a big, 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 big moment. And so, I mean, what happened then when, when you had that, that aha moment, that uh, enlightenment, uh, for lack of a better word? I resolved to stop judging everybody, anybody. And I decided to go for grace instead. Grace and compassion have been the cornerstones of everything that I wanted to build in my life. And so with seeing everyone as either, you know, good or bad, was there not a gray area in there for you? Or was it just, was it all just kind of one or the other? And there's not a little bit of uh, a little bit of peanut butter in my chocolate or a little bit of chocolate in my peanut butter kind of a thing 
when you're the kind of person who's driven yourself to be chronically depressed, you better believe that you're seeing the world largely as black and black. Forget about white, yeah. like just black. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, you know, you know, once you're able to stop judging um, and kind of got past that, I mean, what was that next day like? when you wake up in the morning and you, you know, see your first person, experience your first interaction with another person, what was that like? It was because I did all this work somatically, getting rid of judgment was just like a big thing shifted out of my body. It was just like this big release from my body, something that was heavy and weighing my body down just left my body it just left and I would always feel this layers and layers leaving my body and it had been ongoing from 2007 2008 where I could feel the energy shifting in my body and things going up and this one was a big one and I started I started my love affair with grace at the same time because it wasn't really like even though a large part of judgment left me, I, st I still could see areas where I was still judgmental. And I decided every time I was being judgmental, I would invite grace and I would invite compassion and I would invite these. And every time a harsh word is spoken, either by me or by another, anybody, I will speak the kind words in return. I will re reply, not because... I love them, not because I care about them, but because this is my contribution in my lifetime. I want this to be my contribution. And so is there a specific type of person who, like, let's say you're doing some, uh, you're looking to do some sort of sales marketing campaign, and they say, who are you targeting? Do you, is there an answer for that one? Or is this is this anybody? Or is there a time frame when you want them to come to you? You said earlier once they've hit rock bottom, but is there a certain type of person who would be kind of best for you? Or is it open to anybody? Or what would you say for that? Well, I I think someone needs to be really motivated to do their inner work uh, because it's you know the work that we do is deep and the ability to see what you're doing to yourself and your own life it takes a certain amount of strength uh all the work is conscious and self-led so that's another another factor so it's probably most suited to somebody who's got the drive to become their own healer to become a self-healer this is how I feel driven to serve. And I think we talk a lot about niche and marketing and stuff, but my most important driver is what uh, who I feel most called to serve. And that is somebody who really wants to become their own healer. Because for me, even when I went to therapy, even when I went to things, I would, my, I moved so rapidly in my own healing because I had my own meditation practice I had my own various things that I was doing I was constantly reading constantly learning that I couldn't really stay with one therapist for more than say four weeks and I had outgrown them in four weeks and then I had to find another so it was very 
uh, I'm a different kind of person because I'm just very, I'm just like, once I've decided, made up my mind, the 2007, I made up my mind. It was just bang, bang, bang. I made up my mind. I'm going to change everything. And I just, every, everything I had, I threw at my healing. That's what I did. And this is what I do. And when people want to heal and they want to throw everything at it, they will get it when they come to me. This is what they will get. They can get the most powerful resources that they can throw at their healing you know, and to get to get to that, to get to that rapid level, I would say for me, if I saved somebody 20 years of suffering, that would be quite a good outcome, I would say. And so when someone wants to throw all their energy at their healing, how are they going to do that? And how are they going to work with you? And where can they find more information about that? Okay, so I have basically two, two modalities to work with me. Um, One is I have right now a membership and launch, which is just really uh the very founding members uh offer right now it's a somatic self-healers membership where in uh we work in a group setting it's mainly self-led i i share somatic exercises this is very much based on the biomechanics of the body and how the body uh what if we do certain things the body releases all this held stress so we work every month on with a few exercises. They will have to do it every day. So this is good for people who want to do a bit of somatic work every day and see that improvement. They have the Facebook group. They have Zoom calls so they can work with me. Right now is a great time because it's on a pre-launch offer, which is just 119 USD a month, which is a really, really cheap price. First of August is when we go live. And from then on, it's 149 USD a month which is still a pretty good price because you will get yeah. more out of doing those exercises in a month than you would get in, in, you know, uh, in any other kind of work because it's just so powerful, uh, very well crafted with the body in mind and under- understanding of the body and how it works. So the other one, uh, this is really well suited if you have any kind of uh, physical ailments, chronic illness, etc., because that those come from large chunks of energy being stored in our body. So, large chunks of energy need to leave for which we need these exercises uh the other offer i have is a a course called from stuck to self-healing i have my own healing method it's called somatic imagery method it's a fun playful storytelling based way of healing somatically i created this when i was healing with my son i didn't want him to have the hard things to do so i did it the really soft and gentle playful way and then we realized that the body likes to talk in stories and, uh, you know, those kind of things. So that course, I run it periodically. It's um, I used to run it as a, as a five-week course, probably going to run it more like an eight-week course going forward. Uh, they can come in and do some of my, see some of my free resources before I launch the next one. I'm going to have this course running in October where they can learn, again, somatic uh, imagery methods. So they learn it, they practice it in the group setting. And then they have that tool for life. So it's very much driven by giving people tools so they can heal themselves. And I obviously offer them a space with grace, compassion, and connection where they can actually learn properly and heal well. Excellent. Okay. Well, yeah. Hey, um, Prabhat, thank you so much for being on here. And I am glad we got to talk, not knowing where we're going to go, what we get, get to, but I'm glad we got to where we got to. And uh, hopefully everyone's going to, you know, Gain, gain some knowledge from this so um, thank you thank you rusty for yeah. inviting me i'm so i'm so grateful to be here thank you everyone for listening if you did listen thank you yeah uh, they, they, if, if they're here they're listening so um, <laughs> yeah 
Well, so yeah, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll talk talk again, all right? Okay, thank you, Rusty. Thank you. you bet. Bye. All right, that's uh, Prabha Nagarajan. So yeah, you guys get a hold of her and learn, learn. You guys, you can get feeling better. Why not feel better? I tell people this all the time. Why not feel better? It's all right. It's all right to feel better. You don't have to feel shady. You don't have to. You can if you want to. If that's your, if that's your gimmick, you want to feel shady all the time, go for it. Who's stopping you? You know, I, I might not encourage you to do it, but who's stopping you from doing it? So if you want to do it, go for it. But when you don't want to, then, then you know, feel better. It's cool. Ain't nothing wrong with that. So you guys, um, thank you so much for listening here. And man, I don't, where is that? Let's see if I can do this. Uh, I guess not. So, hey, guys, um, thanks so much for listening here. Uh, check out the other shows on the network, such as When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is with Lizzie, Saved by the Ben. And the show is brought to you by Fred Ben Savage as fuck. Stoner East Productions, Hardcore Entertainment, Hypnosis Great, and SockEmUp.org. You guys, and that is the show. Man, you better subscribe, like, and share it. Boom! It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Ernest! 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 <coughs> yes, Pee Wee. You brought the snacks, right? <laughs>